0: This is Sandcast Beach Volleyball with Tryborn and Travis Mawerder, my buddy. Try is off in off-season mode. He's in Hawaii, fresh off his first uh, first ever MVP award. He was the AVP MVP for the first time this year, so he's getting some much deserved time in the waves in Hawaii. So I'm just going solo today, and I'm bringing on a fellow writer and author, Mr. Sean Murray, author of If Gold Is Our Destiny. And I'm going to put it in parentheses, and so be it, Chris <laughs> Marlowe. How are we doing, Sean? I'm great, Travis. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, exactly. So be it, as Chris yes. Marlowe said. <laughs> it's uh, man. I mean, I thought it was so cool. The one of my favorite parts about reading books, and this is really any sports book. I just read a book on the USFL by Jeff Perlman. I don't know if you've ever read anything that he's written. It is when you get these insider access and sort of the behind the scenes look at it, and, and you had access to Chris Marlowe's journals which I thought was so cool. Um I'm interested in your just the reporting process that you went about with the book. Obviously your your dad as you mentioned in the book was a team psychologist uh with the team for for quite a bit. Um but this book is obviously what you grew up sort of within this culture and then you came out with this book. What prompted you to to write if gold is our destiny uh now?
1: Well, you know, it all started with a gift for- from my wife, a book she gave me that she'd heard from someone else was really good, uh, and it was called Boys in the Boat. I don't know if you mm-hmm. read – it's about another American team. It was a crew team that won a gold medal in the 1936 Olympics, yep. in Berlin, also known as the Nazi Olympics. And This American team, which was really an underdog team, went up and – they beat the nazi boat even though the nazis were cheating and all this stuff. So it's just a great story and I was really inspired by the the story and I'm in the I come from the world of leadership development and organization development. I help companies develop cultures and help build winning teams and you know just help with you know organizations aligning their their people and their talent to to for business success and that's kind of the world that I'm in and and I I teach these principles but the people love to learn from sports stories. You know, people absolutely love sport. I often hear, well, you know, how does uh, how would Michael Jordan do it? You know, or how would uh, how would how did Bo Jackson get to be so great? Or, you know, these guys, Tom Brady, why is he such a good leader? And so I thought, uh, you know, I'd like to tell a story or write a story about a team and really understand how they did it, how they became the best in the world. And and I started thinking about different teams that I'd come across in my life. And this one that really popped out was this 1984 USA Men's National Volleyball Team, Olympic team that went to the Los Angeles Olympics in 84. And I happened to be there. I was only 13 at the time, but I was at that Olympics. My dad, as you mentioned, had this connection, was the team sports psychologist along with another gentleman or partner of his, uh, Chuck Johnson. So my father, Don Murray, and Chuck Johnson, together, they were helping Doug Beal, the head coach, and his coaching staff, coach this group, as I call them, Mavericks, these uh, really highly talented volleyball players, many of whom grew up on the beach, learning on the beach, and, and tried to help get them to play together as a team. And uh, and so that I had this memory of this team. It, and i i knew they won gold i also knew they went on to really dominate it wasn't just a fluke it wasn't just a a team that that rose to the occasion won one gold medal they went on to to win a world cup a world championships uh, another gold medal in Seoul. they might have been able, if they could just have pulled it together a little bit longer, they almost took gold again in 92. So it was just a dominant dynastic team. And I wanted to study it. And I knew they'd been on this outward bound adventure that sounded kind of interesting. And that's what prompted me. It got me to to bring up, call Doug Beale, who I knew through my father and ask him about the team. And and that kind of got
0: the ball rolling. Yeah. And and we both we both mentioned Doug Beale because I worked with him for my book that I wrote with Ken Steffes, uh, Kings of Summer. I, I think that interviewing doug is such a refreshing sort of breath of fresh air because he is able to look back at things so honestly and he takes the emotions out of it i, I just doug was just so candid and so willing and, and free with his time and you could tell that he just looks back and he's like yeah i mean i messed up here and what was interesting you know is that the players both the ones that i talked to for for my book and and the ones in if Goal is our destiny they, they had a very similar review of Doug that he wasn't a players coach but he got it done. You know, he wasn't going to be your friend, but he took a this team that was just moribund and frankly a, a bad national program and turned it into a, a dynastic one. And as a as someone who's so big into leadership development as you, I'm interested in what you learned from studying this team.
1: Well, I learned a lot from Doug Beal and studying Doug and how he led the not just this team, but the the program, and really volleyball uh, in the United States during those years. And he's just got such a long history. For those of you who don't know, he was also the the head of executive director of USA Volleyball for many years. Just retired, I think, in 2018. Um, so, in his he got started with the sport in in before high school so in I would say probably the late 50s early 60s something like that so anyway I learned a lot about Doug and his leadership he is very open he was willing to say hey I made mistakes here I made mistakes there I learned from this uh, but I I guess the some key lessons from Doug you know he brought a a sort of higher expectation to the program just by how he approached the program so he one of the things I noticed was he was He was very good at putting together a staff. He he put together great people around him. And then that allowed him to look a little further and, and think about how do I not just make this team successful, but how do I grow a program? How do I lay the foundation for something great in the United States? And that requires making connections in the business community and raising money and going out there and just being an ambassador to the sport and going to Olympic committees and sitting on committees so that you could you know, make decisions that would help the program in some way. And, and he, he went out and he, he scheduled the team like a hundred games in a couple of the years that, which is unheard of now, the national team. That's a big number. (laughs) Yeah. I think they play 20 or something or 25. I mean, it's like, you know, he just, he thought big and he, he did big things and he accomplished a lot of big things and he did it by putting some great people around him. And then he was strategic, he was visionary, he could look further. And just some people can do that. And that's just pure leadership. And, and that was the leadership part. But he also, you know, he put together a good team, he did get into the X's and O's and work with his team on how do we come together? How do we develop uh, an American system? um, How do we take these beach volleyball players that grew up playing on the beach, two on two, some of them were quote, unquote, uncoachable, according to some people in the program. (laughs) But they,
0: they they won a gold medal together, so it's it's a, it's a an amazing story. And one of the things that I think that Doug Beal, and really the, this goes back to Carl McGowan and Bill Neville before him, was that they were so far ahead of their time in that they weren't trying to assemble the best team, or the best players. They, they were trying to assemble the best team. And I feel like it, the first example that I can think of who did that was Herb Brooks with that 1980 Miracle on Ice team, where he cut some of the best players because they weren't necessarily – cohesive. And then they were also sort of ahead of their time with just having your dad and Chuck Johnson on the staff as sports psychologists. I mean, sports psychology, mindfulness, meditation, it's having its moment now, but they were half a century ahead of their time. Uh, it, it was just, it, it feels like it was such a prescient move by Carl McGowan, Bill Neville, your, your dad, it, mm. it, but it's tough to be a trailblazer.
1: <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot there in your question, just to kind of, to talk a little bit about their, position around it's not the best players it's the best players that play together as a team that is a it it is a statement that was ahead of its time in those days in the 70s and 80s and and one one of the things that Doug had going for him and and also Neville Bill Neville his assistant coach and Carl McGowan is they lived through the 70s and the 70s were was a time where they learned what didn't work and so Doug was a player on the national team in the late 60s and early 70s. And that's what the US used to do. We'd pull together this group of all stars, most of them from the LA, Southern California area, because that was just a hotbed of talent in, in volleyball at the time, still is, but it was really more dominant in those days. And they would get these all stars together. They'd practice for a few weeks, go after Europe, and they would lose to these teams that. That really gelled. That played together. That had this trust and respect, and 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 so they realized that that didn't always work. They needed to play together as a team. And I think the Herb Brooks example is great. They he did that with the nineteen eighty Miracle on Ice team, and that that's been sort of uh, sort of legendary in sports now. And and Doug did that as well. They they really took a a, a hard look at who they wanted on the team that based on playing together and buying into the philosophy. And I think Chuck Johnson told Doug Beal early on, it's probably going to take one or two players to to opt out, opt themselves out because they're not going to be able to commit to the program
0: before people really get the culture. And I think that did happen. Yeah. And I think this is where kind of the the beach and indoor overlap begins. Because like I was telling you before we came on, it is that this 1984 Olympic team I think is one of the most important teams in the history of beach volleyball in regards to both who made it and who didn't make it because we talked about how you know St. John smith was on the team then he wasn't tim hovland was on the team then he wasn't then he was then he wasn't <laughs> randy Stoklos had a brief moment mike dodd trained in dayton for a minute um and then when they were cut they were sort of freed up to go pursue beach volleyball and and sort of to become the the kings of the beach so to speak and then on the team who stayed was Chris Marlowe, who had won two Manhattan Beach Opens before he was on the team, wasn't on the team, back on the team, off the team, backing team captain, and Dusty Dvorak, Pat Powers. And it it was really interesting for me because I wrote Kings of Summer with a lot of empathy for the beach players because they're, like you mentioned, they had the attitudes, they wanted the creativity, and then somehow this outward bound trip that you went into great detail into, I, I think that that sort of cut the ice a little bit um, where you merge these two cultures of the Easties East and the Westies, the East Coast players, the Ohio States, and the the LA guys. Um, how vital do you think that that trip was in melding these two totally different cultures onto a pretty cohesive unit?
1: I think the Outward Bound was important. It was an important element in the development of the team, and. If you ask the players today, and I even put this in the book, some of them see it as being important. Some of it, some of them still wonder: Did it really help us get to the gold medal? But <laughs> yeah. uh, so I just want to, you know, full disclosure on that: that I, I, if you if you got Paul Sunderland on this program, he might say <laughs> I'm not so sure it helped us. So I'm. It's not the only view. My view is not the only view on this. But from my perspective of watching teams, watching them develop. One of the key elements to a successful team is trust. I mean, you know this from studying beach volleyball and, you know, having two players, two partners that trust and work well together and bring out the best in each other. There's just something where that, you know, it's the proverbial, the the sum of the team is greater than the parts somehow. And when you can get that, that's where you win gold medals. That's where you win championships is when you find partners that can do that. And the same thing in beach volleyball. Maybe more so because now we're dealing with six players and these the rotation and we you need to find a a team that plays well together and it starts with trust and respect and people understanding their role and so what the coaches did at some point and this there was some discussion with Doug Beal Bill Neville my father Don Murray Chuck Johnson they got together and they said we need to do something to get this team to. To work together, there was this. There were some clicks. There was the East Coast players; they called them the Easties. There was the Westies. You know, the Easties were from Ohio State, and it was uh, it was Mark Waldy, uh, Dewillius, also and Aldis Berzins. They had come from Ohio State. The rest of the team pretty much from L.A. But then, even with the L.A. team, you had the UCLA players, <laughs> and <you had> the <laughs> USC players, and we all know there was a massive rivalry between those groups. And, uh, you know, Doug eventually had to tell them to not wear their college jerseys when they came to practice because it would just cause too many problems. And so they just weren't, they didn't quite have that trust, whatever it was, respect, foundation, and, and they decided they needed a shared significant life experience together. Funny enough, they thought about going to boot camp. <laughs> they thought, they thought, <laughs> let's take these volleyball players to boot camp, which is sort of hilarious if you think about it. it. You know, It could have been a totally different book if they'd gone to boot camp, but the Marines said, no, we're not putting your volleyball team through boot camp. So they ended up going on Outward Bound, which is not so much just an adventure in the outdoors as it is a course. It's a course that was designed to allow these players to learn how to survive out there on their own, which required them to rely on each other to survive and that was part of the the trust and development the trust and respect that was developed is because they had to they had to work together they learned how to read maps and how to orient and they learned how to rock climb and it was it was a knowledge transfer where you basically learned how to survive in the outdoors and it was also 3 weeks in Utah in the middle of winter so it was totally out of the comfort zone for these players like, you know the beach was where they thrived now they're in Temperatures that got down to five degrees. They were hiking and snowshoeing up over eleven thousand foot snow po- snow packed peaks in the Abajo Mountains. They were snow camping. They were rock climbing. I mean, it was it was a grueling, challenging experience that created a lot of adversity.
0: And that was the point. They had to work together to overcome the adversity, and they did and it wasn't this wasn't just like a, a couple days this wasn't a weekend boy scout trip it, it started as a 28 day trip and they cut it to 21 and i was thinking even 21 days and i love backpacking and camping i was like 21's a long time out there in the cold yeah it was start it, it, it was first designed in 28 and you can imagine the
1: player's reaction i i, I talked with my dad i talked with Bill Neville about, how did you sell this? And they said, oh my, you know, we got in front of the team and we said, you know, here's the plan. And they, the players thought they were nuts. You know, they're like, are you crazy? You know, we <laughs> thought Doug Beal was crazy, but we didn't think he was that crazy. That's what Paul Sunderland told me. And, uh, you know, they, they through their just sheer willpower and resistance, they did whittle it down to 21 days, but it was still 21 days. I mean, three weeks is a long time out in the cold. I mean, this is January in the Abajo mountains, which is near the Canyonlands national park, they actually go up and over these, these mountains. And then, then they descended down into the park where they did some kind of almost canyoneering kind of hiking in the, uh, in the, in the slick rock and the sandstone cliffs there. But uh, this was a, this was a severe test definitely. And um, you know, halfway through Dvorak basically said, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm I call it the breaking point when I talk about this trip. And Dusty was the was the setter of this team. He was, you know, really the quarterback, so to speak, and the most important player, I believe. I know Karch Karai was an emerging talent at that time coming out of UCLA, and his potential was limitless. But at the time, Dvorak was just so central to their offense and everything. And and there was this resupply truck that came and Dusty said, you know, I think I'm going to hop on this resupply truck and I'm out of here. Sorry, Doug, I'm done. I don't know why we're doing this, you know. You can imagine the players are thinking how am I going to get better at volleyball out here in the wilderness you know snowshoeing how's that going to help me play volleyball and, and of course we know now it's it's by helping them learn how to play together as a team but Dusty said he was going to leave so to to Doug's credit he said okay Dusty you can leave you're free to leave but there's just two things one I want you to get in front of the team and tell them why you're leaving and two you know when you get back to San Diego and I we all get back there and we start practicing again there's no guarantee you're going to be on this team and who knows if Doug was was really gonna let him go if he didn't? Uh, who knows? Doug, Doug probably doesn't even know to this day. But <laughs> that got Dusty to think about, well, you know, how much he really wanted to be a part of this team, how much how important it was to, for him to be to achieve this Olympic dream through his teammates. And he he told me he said, you know, I know I thought Doug would probably bring me back, but he said I just didn't know. I I, I knew that the players. I wouldn't have their trust and respect that I that I would need if I didn't finish this. And I would need that to be a successful setter, to be a part of this team. We all have to be on the same page. And so I told myself, he, he said, I dug deep. I looked inside myself. I said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a part of this team. I'm just going to do what it takes to make it happen. And he did. And they did become a team. And I think, you know, I call that chapter the breaking point, but I think it was also a turning point for the team.
0: Yeah. And it's funny how sports work like that, where often where you get to those breaking points, that's exactly where you do become a cohesive unit, which in a way, I don't think that Doug Beale had intended it to get that far south, but in a way, like you do need to go through an adverse experience and that unites you. I mean, that's it goes back. I mean, any military book you read through, I think Sebastian Junger, I don't know if you've read any of his work, but when he wrote in Tribe, and that a lot of times it's the tough stuff that bonds you more than anything, just like most teams will get back together after a loss we just saw in uh, the world cup argentina they lost to saudi arabia to open things up the biggest upset in world cup history they go ahead and win the whole thing so i think the outward bound experience um while probably severe and took it to the limit i think that ended up did making that team come together even though to this day sunderland might not necessarily agree or <laughs> or Marlo or some of those guys
1: absolutely i I thought about that you know your reference to the world cup and argentina losing their first game was it to saudi arabia i think right Mm -hmm. which is surprising you know really surprising and i thought i i wondered how much did that loss make the victory possible and just from having studied this 84 team i think it was I'm sure it helped them, and I think Messi even said something to that effect—that it helped them. That, that sometimes the sooner you can get to that loss and learn from it, you know, it's about being successful is often learning from failure and learning what you need to do to get better. And, and to Argentina's credit, they did. And I think this U.S. team learned from that experience, and they they started to develop something called the American system after they came back from this event, from this, you know, overcoming the outward bound challenges. And it was a way of playing indoor volleyball that was unique and creative and innovative. And I don't think it would have been possible without the trust because it required trying different things. And it, it also did a great job of, of bringing out the unique, um, Beach volleyball talent that was sort of inherent in this team. They they grew up playing on the beach and they had a different approach to volleyball than most teams in the world. And and so the American coaches were sitting around scratching their heads. How do we get more out of Steve Timmons? You know he he. How do we get more out of Pat Powers and and Chris Marlowe and the way he would set on the beach and then, so they they they'd found a way to do it.
0: Yeah, and for, so the American system uh, that you explained in your book, they they went about it in a completely different way because volleyball at the time was played virtually sort of straight up like the Russians, you know, you were setting to the outside and they were going to be huge, right? But they were also huge. They still are huge to this day. But what the Americans did is they ushered in this new era of specialization where instead of having four passes in the back row, they had Karch Karai and Aldis Berzins. They were passing. And to this day, you know, Mike Dodds is Aldis Berzins is is still one of the best passers. Ever, and I think um, one of the things I'm really curious about, because Sinjin Smith is obviously, a, I mean, an incredible passer, one of the best ball control players. If that specialization, if they had made this system earlier, if Sinjin would have been on the team as one of the best passers. Um, yeah.
1: Well, no, Sinjin was also a setter in college at UCLA. Mm-hmm. I think Sinjin and Karch set together in their system. And uh, and I Doug said they they really thought about using a two-setter system on uh, the American system uh, for that 84 team they ended up using just dusty Dvorak. Uh, but you know, Sinjin. Yeah. I mean, I think he was just incredibly talented at the time. And I think the, the challenge there was Doug Beal had put down some pretty severe rules about what he demanded of his players. And I, and I think those rules, um, you know, they seem sort of arbitrary and maybe at the, unnecessary in today's world, but he felt they were really necessary at the time. One of them was no beach volleyball. You know, one of the rules was, I don't want you. He said, you can play beach, but you can't play beach and be on this team. And I think that was a hard one for St. John. I think it was a hard one for for Hovland. Uh, he also said no, no pay, playing for money in Europe he said, again, I wish you the best, go sign the biggest contract you can have all the success in the world, but we need to really work on becoming an indoor team. And we have so much work to do. I am going to ask the players that want to commit to be here for the Olympics five days a week. We're going to play over hundred matches in a year. We're get, I mean, they just, it's not like today where you could go off, in play professionally, and there was just windows. You play on the national team, he really had the ability to say, You you, you need to be in the gym. And, um, but uh, you know, that's a really good question about Sinjin. You'll have to get him on the ask him, man, and yeah. get Doug Neal on because that's a really good question of what might have been if Sinjin, this because he would have been he would have fit in well just purely on his
0: talent to a system like that. Yeah, there's so many what ifs, you know, because <laughs> we've mentioned Haaland a lot, and even you. Even when Hovland and Doug Beal, who butted heads probably as much as any player and coach I've ever seen, even Doug would say Tim Hovland was the best middle in the world, but he went over in Italy and and to see Hovland's perspective, it's not very hard because he was like, I was making half a million dollars in Italy playing against the best in the world instead of sleeping on a couch in San Diego, training against a bunch of bums from Ohio state. (laughs) That's how
1: I would describe. (laughs) I know he made a, I interviewed him for this book (laughs) and he made a really good case. You know, I was, I had to, you know, he said, I was playing against better talent. He really believed he was doing the best thing for the team by playing in Europe. And if he could have got some more players over there. And I, and I think, you know, Doug would probably say maybe that would have worked too. You know, I mean, he's, Doug's pretty introspective and he doesn't necessarily think that just because it worked out well, that it was the only way or necessarily all of his decisions were perfect or anything like that. So he may, he may very well second guess that one, but that is what happened. And Hovland was playing. I, I heard from all the coaches that they thought Hovland was, was the best player in the United States at that time. It mm-hmm. was Hovland. yeah, yeah, I mean, and which is amazing to think about that I mean, we all know how great Hovlin is and what an athlete he, he is and but that he wasn't on that team, you know, and a lot of people thought Beal was crazy that he wasn't doing everything he could to get him on the team to now, to Doug's credit, he was trying to do a lot to get him on the team. They both will say that. they'll say, yeah. you know, I tried they they both tried to compromise, but they're both, I would say, Pretty stubborn in their ways too. And I think they both admit that too, that they they both wanted to compromise,
0: but they're not people that compromise easily. Yeah. Especially when both of them thought that what they were doing was best for the team. Yeah. Probably I am being a team player by going playing against the best player in the world. Yeah. And and feels like, well, I'm doing what's best for the team by keeping you the same gym as the rest of the team. And so it's very easy to see both of their points of view.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was one of those, you know, when, as a writer, you have to sort of tell both sides of the story and then, you know, sometimes provide your point of view. But I, yeah, that, that was an interesting one. And that was, you know, it's just, you have to make tough decisions as a coach. You have to make tough decisions as a program to move forward. And not everyone's going to agree with you. And one of the things that Doug said is we couldn't be afraid to look foolish and, he was accused of looking foolish, like putting two passers back there, putting Karj Karai and Aldous Burzins back to receive serve was unorthodox. It was really unheard of, especially the same two players. And, you know, when they first rolled it out, it was, uh, people thought it was a little strange. And, but he said, you know, we're going to just try it. We're going to learn from it. We're going to try to grow. The same thing with something like Hovland not being on the team. People thought that was foolish, but he ended up winning a gold medal, you know? So,
0: uh, you, these are just some of the tough leadership calls you have to make. Yeah. And I'm curious, uh, your process as a writer. So with Kings of summer, you know, when, when you're interviewing all these guys, um, who are a little bit older, this was a long time ago, 1984 Olympics is that Hobb would have one side, Doug Beal would have a side, Sinjin's over here, Karch is here, Randy Stoklos is over there. So I have five different accounts of the same event that aren't adding up, and so I'm curious if you ran into any of that because I ran into a lot of it. And I, I mean, Kent, he cracked up at it and he goes, What do we do with this? So, what I, what the decision we made with Kings of Summer was to include everyone's perspective and let the reader make up their mind uh, of what actually happened here. And I'm curious um, when you, it, it had to have been inevitable that you ran into some of those <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. no, <laughs>
0: contrasting I, accounts. <laughs> I, I have a lot of sympathy for what you and Kent went
1: through because I experienced the same thing. I I I remember talking to Doug about it. I talked with my wife about it. I'd say, you know, I'm interviewing these players about the same event. I know it happened. It's just everyone thinks it happened differently or why it happened. It, they have different accounts. And you learn a lot about human memory, about how we tell ourselves stories. And, you know, where the truth is, you're always as a writer, you're always trying to get to the truth. Um, I had a a mentor writer of mine who is a New York Times bestseller. And he, you know, I I brought this question to him and, and he comes up through the world of journalism. And, and he said, just try to follow the truth. But sometimes you just don't know where the truth is because you're hearing right. it from multiple people, but you just try to keep getting at the truth. And I think providing all the perspectives and letting the
0: reader decide is a great one from a historical perspective. We're going to take a quick break from the show, not just any break. This is the Waiakea Water Break. Now, Waiakea has been keeping us hydrated all year long, not just with any ordinary water. This is Hawaiian volcanic water. And all those bottles you saw, what's really cool is that they're made up of 100% post consumer recycled ocean bound plastic. So, what that means is that each bottle helps remove the equivalent of five bottles from ocean bound beaches, waterways, and cities. So, not just keeping us hydrated, they're helping out the environment too. And try. that's not the only cool thing they're doing. That's right. They're giving back to those in Hawaii through the Kokua Initiative, which supports the local food banks
1: and the nonprofits out there. Another really cool thing is that they make coffee. I'm a big coffee fan, so I'm excited to drink this product. And for every pound of coffee purchased, Waiakea donates a book to a child through its literacy program. So use promo code SANCAST online at waiakea.com to receive 20% off your order You can also pick some up at 7-Eleven. Live healthy, live sustainably, live ethically, live aloha at waikea.com
0: thank you guys the listeners for giving support to the sponsors which then allows us to continue supporting us it's a virtuous cycle we love it we love that you're listening we love that the sponsors are on board and we love that wilson volleyball has been with us since day one almost five years now wilson has been working with the boys and we love those guys we love the volleyballs they make the ball carts they make we love the apparel that they make i saw troy field playing golf with the golf clubs that they make we love wilson Love everything they got, love everything they put out there, and as do you. And to get a 20% discount of all Wilson materials, just the volleyball stuff, get use the discount code SANCAST-20. All right, that's Sandcast-20 to get 20% off all Wilson materials. I mean, I'd say that off-season's coming up, but there's really no off-season. But at this point in the year, you probably need to restock up on volleyballs. I know I have. I just put in an order for 15 more. It's about time for you to do the same. So use the discount code Sandcast-20 to restock on all Wilson volleyballs, the best beach volleyball in the game. This podcast is also brought to you by Athletic Greens. And guess what? Try and I just signed on another year-long contract with Athletic Greens, keeping the partnership going because it is one of the best partnerships we could have for this podcast. If you guys aren't on Athletic Greens yet, if you're not taking those scoops of those green veggies, I cannot recommend it enough. I haven't been sick in two years because of Athletic Greens, and we bring it on the road. They have these awesome little travel packs that they bring. you can bring on the road with you. I bring them everywhere. I haven't missed a day in the last year and a half or so pretty much ever since me and Tri started working with them. It's basically a multivitamin, the best multivitamin on the block. It's cheap. It's less than $3 a day, which might sound expensive, but if you're investing in your health, it's cheaper than your cold brew coffee habit. It's cheaper than the lattes and it's way better for you. All right, it's, it's the, the best all-in-one nutritional insurance you can get. I mean, Joe Rogan, he has it. Tim Ferriss is promoting it. Michael Gervais promoting it. Andrew Huberman's promoting it. All the big dogs are. We're just the little dogs here at Sandcast, and we're promoting it, and we stand by it. Me and Tri, we've been healthy all season long, despite playing two huge schedules this year, and Tri's got another couple big ones coming up with Olympic qualifying. And the best way we're fueling ourselves, athletic green. And you can feel yourself the same way by using our code, athleticgreens.com slash sandcast. All right, that's where you get our partner deal. You will get five free packs and a year's supply of their vitamin D. That is a year's supply of vitamin D. Now, we're on the beach. We get a lot of it anyway, but you can always use more. It's so good for your immune system. It's so good for your overall health. So that is athleticgreens.com slash sandcast. That's where you will find our partner deal. So I cannot encourage you enough to pick up some athletic greens today. If you love the podcast and want to show how much you love the podcast, then get some Sandcast merchandise. We've got t-shirts, we've got tank tops, we've got coffee mugs, hats, long sleeves, sweatshirts, backpacks, you name it. If you go to sandcastmerch.com, you can find virtually anything you want. And if there's nothing in our store that you don't, that you want, you can just send us an email and we'll make it for you. That's how easy it is. So if you want to rock your the merch of your favorite podcast today, tomorrow, whenever you want to get it, go to sandcastmerch.com and start rocking some Sandcast apparel. Looking for a book to read? Well, I know the absolute perfect one. If you're listening to this podcast, that means you are obviously a volleyball fan of some sort, be it indoors or beach volleyball. And that means that you have probably heard of a guy named Ken Steffes. And if you haven't, well, you can flip open our book, Kings of Summer. You can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. You can find our book, Kings of Summer The Rise of Beach Volleyball. Now, Kent, he didn't do interviews for like 20 years after his retirement when he was 30. He's the most dominant beach volleyball player of all time. He won more than half the tournaments he played. He won the 1996 Olympic gold medal with Karch Karai, and we wrote all about it. We had the first Inside look of the rise of beach volleyball from the first professional tournament in 1976 up until those 1996 Atlanta Games, the first that beach volleyball was in the Olympics. I had an absolute blast working on this book with Kent, and Kent had a blast writing on it. He's been writing a ton on Facebook. He is back in the beach volleyball game, and the best, I mean, it's honestly. You know, it's the work that I'm probably more proud of than anything that I've done because it, it had interviews from all the greats. It had St. John Smith. It had karch Karai. It's got Randy, Dodd, Havlin, and then Kent's there the whole time, his voice going in and out and writing it with me. And if you're a fan of old school beach volleyball, if you're a fan of beach volleyball at all, if you're a fan of volleyball or the Olympics or just stories of greatness, that is the one for you. So go ahead, go to Amazon, and pick up a copy of Kings of Summer today. Yeah, and it um, it, it allowed – I think that was – as a writer, it was, it was the fairest thing I could do because I couldn't really pick sides because I generally – I see Sinjin all the time. I really liked Doug and his honesty and his openness and his ability to make time. I was like, I can't – you guys are still butting heads about this stuff, but I'm not picking sides here. So here's Sinjin's side and here's Doug's side. Decide for yourself, Reader. Yeah. <laughs> it was exactly. a lot of fun to write. Um, where was your – what was your starting point as a writer? Where did you begin? Because a book is such a massive undertaking where it's really hard to narrow it down to the really small steps to get to that big, big goal picture.
1: Well, I I started with you know, obviously interviewing everyone and getting as much data as I could. And then I started to think about how do I tell a story that's interesting for a reader? You know, because readers want to get hooked into why, why is this book interesting? Why is it important? And so uh, I, I did a lot of studying around narrative and plot. And even though it's a nonfiction book, you want there to be a plot that takes people through the journey of the hero's journey, so to speak, or through a journey of evolution with the team. And so that's why I decided to start actually in 1982. <laughs> I decided to start the story there at the world championships because the team by that the team was striving to be a better team. They wanted to be the top three in the world. Their goal was to medal at the 84 Olympics. This is two years before the Olympics, and they just have a sort of an epic failure. You know, they they end up 13th at that world championships. They had a chance to beat Bulgaria. They were up. 12 to 5 in the fifth set, and they lost 16 to 14. This was site out scoring. And that was pretty devastating. You know, they didn't make it to the medal round, so the best they could do is get to 13th. And the reason I wanted to start there was it sort of makes it very clear that there was a problem. They had, look at the talent they had. You named off a few people with you know, Dvorak <laughs> yeah. and Powers and Craig Buck and Steve Sammons and Steve Timmons. I mean, they were, this is one of the most talented. At, teams that the US has ever pulled together, and yet they weren't winning. And, and that was sort of the hook. I had to go back and tell a little bit of the backstory, like I said, of the 70s and why things weren't working and, and all of that and get back to what they did to try to get better, which was Outward Bound and some other things in developing this American system. And then, of course, there's just some really interesting twists and turns and plot you know plot turns on their way to the olympics especially as they get closer that you just don't see coming And i had no idea about that part of the story when i went to learn about the team and i kept learning new interesting things that happened to the team as they got closer to the olympics uh that i thought is this really true i can't you
0: know it's better <laughs> than fiction but anyway yeah what were some of the more surprising things that you uncovered well i think chris marlowe just from a a perspective
1: of a human interest story, and you know Chris Marlowe is a very, very fascinating volleyball player and a figure in the sport of volleyball. And he he's one of those players that, whatever team he's on, it seems to win. I don't know if you if you read the article about Shane Battier by. Uh, michael lewis it was in the new yorker i think about 10 years ago it's called the no stat all star but shane was basically this you know he was a a great nba player but his stats weren't that great but every team he played on they won and i chris was sort of like that and i so i went when i was studying chris he he played basketball in high school from pacific palisades they won the la city championships everyone i talked to Said they had really no business winning the LA City Championships at the time, but they did. A lot of the credit went to Chris because when people went out on the court, they played better. He got them to play better somehow. And then he went on to San Diego State and he played basketball and volleyball And on the volleyball team. He was the captain and they won an NCAA championship. It's the only team championship San Diego State has won in any sport, any sport. Still since? Since. Yes, this <laughs> oh my day God. it's the only NCA championship that San Diego State has. They don't even have a men's program anymore, which is very sad. But you know, he was the captain. What? What? You know? Okay. And then he goes on to win these two Manhattan Opens that you talk about. Uh, he won with two different players. He won mm-hmm. with um, which was I think it's a little more maybe normal now, but back then it was not normal to have to to win back to back or like he did and have a different partner, it's, you know, he was able to do it with two different players. And, and then he comes onto this team and everyone I talked to just ha- has nothing but great things to say about him as a teammate. He wasn't the most talented. He was older by, th- he was 32 by the 84 Olympics. He wrote Doug Beal a letter saying he wanted to get back on the team because he was on the team in the 70s. He was a teammate of Doug Beal's, but he wanted to be a part of this. and. So he wasn't the most talented. He physically at the time he, he was past his prime, but he brought something to the team. Uh and then what, what ends up happening is he gets cut. You know, not to reveal too much about the book, but he does get cut. Uh somehow, I won't, I won't reveal it all, but somehow he comes back and becomes a and they vote him a team captain. And I so that whole it just gives me chills to think about. And and he was the captain. Even though he didn't play a lot during the Olympics, uh, I did have access to his journal, and you get to a little inside story of kind of some of the things he was doing behind the scenes. and And they end up winning, and and so it's sort of like his his high school basketball team and his college volleyball team and now '84 team. The teams he were on, he was on tended to win, and he just brought that something special. I think we've all played with players
0: like that. They have that something that they lift everybody around them, and he was able to do that. Mm-hmm. And what I'm one thing I'm wondering, and th- this will be a curiosity that will never be answered, is what does Chris Marlowe's life look like if Rod Wild doesn't break his leg? Because yeah. that's a hinge point in Marlowe's life. <laughs> so it really he's is. He's Called back up, and he's team captain, and then he wins a gold medal, and now he's you know commentating for the Nuggets, and you know he just has this incredible career, and you just have these moments where. It's just so important, you know, Triborn, If you were here, I I think what he would say is your best ability is your availability. Mm -hmm. And then, and Marlo, he stayed in shape. He got back on the team and I love that the team immediately voted him team captain on a team where there's a lot of conflict. I feel like Marlo was just beloved by all the teammates.
1: Yeah, they absolutely loved him. And they, so as soon as he was back on the team, they voted him captain, which I think says something about him and his leadership. And I think you're right. I mean, Life throws you these things, and he he got cut. But the coach said, "You know, stay in shape because you never know." And he did. And, and I think he got cut about four months before the Olympics. And so he he said it was devastating. You know, absolutely devastating. Everybody wanted to know why he was cut, and but he stayed in shape, and he he, he ended up Rod Wild, who was the backup setter to Dusty Dvorak, ended up breaking his leg very tragically in Russia. It was too close to the Olympics for him to to get back and and play and recover. And so Chris gets this call. You know, Chris, I, I don't know where his life would be, but I think he would be very, very successful. That's what I would say about that. Yeah. I don't know where, I don't know if he'd be at the Nuggets as the play-by-play announcer, but I do know that he's, because of some of his intangible strengths and personality, I think he would be doing something amazing somewhere.
0: Did you talk to Rod Wild? about the story? Or the I, I did.
1: I talked to Rod and his, you know, that was a really tough time for Rod. Um, even now, the the experience is very hard. And so, what that taught me was, you know, you, you see this feel-good story about the U.S. Olympic team and, and you think it's just, everyone's going to have a, a great feel-good experience. And then you talk to Rod and his experience wasn't like it didn't end the way he expected it to and it was you realize that there's always two sides to different to to life and you got to deal with adversity and you got to deal with the ups and the downs and 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 rod had to deal with a very very challenging injury that derailed him from being a part of a gold medal winning team and he's still part of the sport and he's still coaching and he's still doing great but he i think it's you know it's just one of those things that's really hard, really hard to to um to handle that,
0: yeah. And then we have Karch, you know, who's one of the most maybe the most important person in volleyball American volleyball history, both indoor and beach. I mean, he's won gold medals on both. And then he just won a gold medal in Tokyo as a coach for the first time. And I believe that was our women's first gold medal indoor ever and i've i always love talking to karch um i'm curious about about your experience because he i think him and doug beal they're able to look back at things unemotionally and and pretty candidly i'm curious about your experience just talking to karch about uh, all these memories and because he he skipped out on the outward bound experience not necessarily his choice (laughs) but you know he was pre-med and that's the only time he could take the course
1: yeah as they were marching through the snow they they <laughs> decided to re rename the whole experience the march without karch because <laughs> karch was taking pre med and wanted to be a doctor there was no professional volleyball there he didn't really see a path for himself as a in volleyball and and not many people did at the time that tells you where the sport was and so he was studying pre med and needed certain courses and so they they granted him a waiver <laughs> from from outward bound but um karch is is an is an amazing guy one of the things that stood out for me about interviewing Karch is his memory his memory is very good he remembers a lot of details about what was happening in those days and conversations so he, very sharp extremely intelligent and his i think the the thing about Karch that really stood out for me was what his teammates said about him at that time was that he brought a different mindset to the game every day to the pra- to practice he set the expectation and the standard of how he was going to practice how he was going to prepare and he held himself to this really high standard. And then he held everyone else to that standard because he was holding himself to that standard. And I think it was all this persons who said, "You know, you either withered under that and just couldn't handle it or you figured out how to try to raise your your ability to try to match his ability. And I think, like Marlowe lifted the team in in a, in a way of sort of, Building up people's confidence and and believing in getting people to believe in themselves and believe in the team and just the way that he talked to people and would talk on the court and it's very uplifting positive and then Karch brought this other element of lifting a team by just setting a very very high bar of what we expect of ourselves and others and that's you know if you look at most championship teams there's somebody like that on the team Mm -hmm. there's someone. It wasn't Doug Beale saying, Hey, you gotta practice hard today. It was Karch practicing really hard and everyone looking around and saying, Well, okay, if he's doing it, we better do it. And that's a big difference. And and I think it's it's what separates the 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 teams like you know that are dynasties like
0: this from from other teams. And I love the way you put it because I, I think maybe one championship, maybe you can get away with that without a guy like Karch. But I think to form a dynasty. I do think you need a guy like that. And it reminds me of, of the last dance. Did you watch the last dance with Michael did, Jordan? Yeah. And there's that episode where Michael Jordan, where the players are asked at the beginning of the episode, you know, is Michael Jordan a nice guy? And everyone's like, ah, <laughs> but what Jordan's big thing was, I never asked someone to do something I didn't do. And he just, he set the bar for excellence. And if you didn't meet it, he'd bark at you but they won six championships because of it. And, and Karcha is sort of like that Jordan-esque character where I think he might not have been quite as big of, of an asshole on the court as Jordan was to his teammates a lot of times, but he drew out the best in everyone, and that's on the beach and indoors and now as a coach for the U.S. women national team.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. Uh, there's also a book written called The Captain Class. Okay. it has I been it's on my
0: to-read list. Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Sam, okay. Sam I I Sam's something. Like,
1: yeah, is it Walker? Right. He's yes. the uh, he's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. He got really interested in teams that were dynasties that were that were great for over an extended period of time, and you know one of those teams was the Celtics d- during their run in the '60s and '70s, and they had Bill Russell. I mean, and so it, he looked at all these teams and he tried to figure out what was the common factor. And was it, was it a new, was it a coach? Was it an innovative strategy? Was it the, a really talented player? He ended up identifying someone called the captain that had, that brought that, that brought the mentality. Sometimes they were the best player like Michael Jordan, but sometimes they weren't necessarily the star of the team, but they brought that in some way. And I just, I mentioned Bill Russell because I think he really exemplified that. He was all about doing everything to help the team win and do all the little things and And so he, the neat thing about that book is he goes into detail on all the the different captains from these teams and it goes across women's sports, men's sports, all kinds of sports going back to the 1890s. It's pretty, pretty fun.
0: Yeah. I'm going to have to order that one because it's been on my to read list for so long. Of course, my to read list just gets longer and longer and and captain class keeps getting pushed down, but that'll remind me to bring it back up on the list. (laughs) The cool thing about this team is that I think it had all those elements. It had the coach. It had the the innovative strategy. It had both leaders, the vocal one in Chris Marlowe, who brought everyone together. But then you also had the star player in Karch, who also happened to be a good leader. I, I think it just had this rare alchemy that you don't see in sports too often. And that's what produces something special, like a gold medal after the team just a couple of years earlier was getting 13th at the world championships.
1: Yeah, yeah. They went from perennial underachiever to the best in the world. And they did. They had a lot of the right elements. And it had a big impact on the sport. I mean, you mentioned earlier about just the, the impact this indoor team had on beach volleyball. And I and I think you could also make the case for the, just the impact that this team had on volleyball and putting volleyball on the map in the United States. The interest level in volleyball after that Olympics went through the roof. I mean, it was at, during that Olympics, they became the most popular team sport as far as the coverage from ABC Sports at the LA Olympics. Every night that they were playing, they would go to the highlights or they'd go to different matches. They'd, they'd go in and watch parts of the match. And the, the U.S., the basically fans across America, started rooting for this team. And they just kept winning. And they went all the way to gold. And they they really put volleyball on the map and laid the foundation for the next generation. And I think that's, uh we should be, really be grateful for them as far as for the sport of volleyball, what they did. Mm-hmm. What do you and think? There's a connection. One more quick thing there's a connection have- that team and the and the women winning through Karch. Their mm-hmm. first gold. And I know they've won medals in between but their first gold came with Karch as their coach and I think that's a great storyline from 84 to 20 really 2021 is when the Olympics they won the gold because it was the 2020 Jap, uh, Tokyo Olympics that were delayed a year for covid. But yeah, I think it's just a great story.
0: Do I hear a sequel? Coming up? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. i was gonna say, do you have plans to write another book? I don't
1: know what I'm gonna write about next. Right now, I've been thinking about different um, different aspects, and maybe looking at another team, or looking at just a a, a single athlete and like a a, a, run, a long distance runner or someone like that, and and look at it from the personal performance.
0: and I'm drawing around some different ideas, but I'm still open right now yeah and a book is it's a long and tiring process. there's a, a decompression process that that you need so this book was published in June July July okay. was this your first book?
1: yeah, it's my first published book. It was published by Roman and Littlefield and I don't come from a background of writing. I started writing about twelve years ago just a blog and writing about different aspects of my work and leadership and working with teams and organizations and and I developed that craft over a long period of time sort of I've I've read your blog too. And I know you've done been writing a long time. And as you know, you just, if you like writing and you start doing more of it, you, you, and you enjoy it, it's something that becomes sort of a habit. And, and that's how I got into writing. And I, I took on writing this book. You do really want to love the subject you're going to write about. I totally agree with what you just said. And I think that's why I'm going to be very discerning and, not jump into anything unless I know that I I really truly love the story and it's something that I want to bring out to others in the world because it's a labor of love. It's not something that uh, you're going to do for a lot of fame and fortune. It's 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 about bringing stories in the world and being channeling your own creativity. And so I know there's some other stories out there, and I'm sure I'll find the right one.
0: Yeah, I think Michael Lewis said it best. I listened. He came on uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast one year and. And he said that the only books I write are the books that I think I'm the only person in the world who can write, and so i've I've used that as my barometer for do I want to take this project on? am I would I like doing this, and do I think I'm the only person who could do this right? And so that's that's sort of my uh, barometer of will I take this project on?
1: Yeah, I think that those are great um conditions to hold yourself to and I you know I when I look at your books I'd say that's very true of the books that you're bringing into the world that you you're uniquely placed based on your experience and and your knowledge and your relationships and your network to tell these stories and I think
0: that that's a great gift to the world so keep doing it thank you I appreciate that and it actually it kind of reminded me of of Marlowe's Grand Slam that he talked about and, and the four elements you need to win an Olympic medal you know, I feel like you also need the the similar four elements to write a good book. You got to get a little lucky. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of people in the right place. When you get everything together, <laughs> something yeah. will happen.
1: Yeah, he got dealt four aces. He said, uh, <laughs> "Yeah, because he he hit on all four of them at that
0: Olympics." And uh, yeah, <laughs> and now, and what uh, what do you think that teams? Because I think that this would be a great book for teams to read. Uh, I think it would be. A good thing for a college program to pick up and have its players read. What do you think that, you know, if the Texas volleyball team or Louisville or, you know, Penn State Pitt, whoever wants to pick this up, what do you think that they could learn from reading if gold is our destiny?
1: Well, I I hope teams do pick it up. I think it will be helpful for teams. I just got back from the American Volleyball Coaches Association meetings last week and Texas just won the national championship. I don't know when this is uh this is gonna come out, but we're just mm-hmm. taking a couple of days after that. And it was fun to watch the women play, and just blown away by the ability of all four teams that were back there. Uh, I did talk with a lot of coaches. There, I, a lot of coaches have already read it. Some, many haven't yet, and asked me about it. And I did do a presentation about the book. I, I think, I think when you coach, there's really two big skills. One is understanding the X's and O's and the strategies. You know how you put a practice together. What kind of offense you're going to run what kind of blocking scheme and then how you teach those skills and that's all really really important and i think most of what they these coaches are learning when they come together at the abca conference there's lots of clinics and meetings around these kinds of things you also have to be a psychologist you also have to understand <laughs> the psychology and they're not always trained in that and they probably learn from all the coaches in their world you know and they have their own style but to be a good coach you there's some psychology involved how you talk to your team how you talk about how you set goals how you talk how you communicate with one another how you deal with failure after after you lose how you want your players to talk to each other on the court you know these are all having to do with relationships building trust psychology And I think you can learn a lot by studying this team. I'm not saying you take everything that this team did and you do it. You certainly don't go off three weeks and outward bound. You can't do that anymore. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you can look for shared significant life experiences. You can look for ways to build relationships outside of the sport. You can look at ways to serve one another. Um, I found that caring for one another as teammates is really important. That's something that they learn to do on outward bound you know, just to survive a night, someone was cooking dinner, someone was gathering firewood, someone's starting the fire, someone setting up the tent. They, they, So I think that's important. You know, just, you know, I'm a huge fan of Ted Lasso, that show, you know, and I know that's fictional, but I think the reason it resonates and the reason that people love that show is we all instinctively know that to be a good leader, you need those two things. And what Ted Lasso brings his, you know, he's a football coach from America, but of course he gets hired to be a football coach in England, which we know what that (laughs) means, right? (laughs) You're not going to be running uh, your fullback right up the middle, you know, between two blockers. And he's successful because They they completely took the strategic tactical part away from Ted Lasso and they said, could they basically the writer said, let's just make this coach purely be psychological, you know, building a culture and and have some fun with that. And I I think the reason it's so successful is we all know that intrinsically. And whether you whether you could really do that or not, I don't know, but it is it reveals a truth. And that truth is, as coaches, you have to, you have to learn how to build a culture. And I think you can learn that in the book.
0: Yeah. And I think that bill neville is, is such an important character in that book because he was sort of the the player's liaison you know doug Beale was like i'm not going to get emotionally attached to these guys and then you had neville who's sort of kind of trimmed the edges <laughs> he made it a little easier to talk to and i, I love seeing just the dynamics and i think that um in retrospect, I think Doug Beal would maybe do some things different, but I think that him being the trailblazer and, and kind of maverick of a coach that he was was so important because he then he figured out, okay, what worked, what didn't. And then 1988, when another gold medal, 92, maybe would have, if Karch would have been there, who knows? <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, I'm, I'm glad you brought Bill Neville because I think he was an important part of that whole 84 team and winning gold. He was the assistant coach. There were two main assistant coaches that Doug Beale hired, Tony Crabb from Hawaii and Bill Neville. And they, the three of them became a great team working together. But Bill, the players absolutely love Bill. I mean, when that was the one unanimous thing across the board was – how much they really loved playing for Bill Neville and wanting to be their best. And of course they wanted to for Doug too, but he was emotionally distant. He didn't want to get, he wasn't that player's coach. You know, he didn't want to build a relationship with these players that became too emotionally attached because he knew he was going to have to cut some of them. But Bill was just, you talk to Steve Timmons today and he'll talk about Bill and (laughs) just what he meant to Steve and how he brought out the best in Steve. And, and I think just Neville had that ability and he still does. He's a really important part of the history of volleyball in America too, is that this, this incredible coach, Bill Neville (laughs) came along and, and, uh, you know, brought that passion and energy to the sport. And, um, I think the coach the players all are indebted to him for what he did to, to get them prepared and and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And in I fact, think go ahead. Let me just tell one quick. I don't yeah. even know if I put this in the book, but Steve Timmons told me that he went on, you know, after the 84 games, Steve was still playing for the national team and and Doug was no longer the coach, and Bill Neville was along the coach, but Steve was on the Timmons was on the team, and he was about ready to go on the court for, I think it was a world cup or world championship in China. And he just had this feeling he had to talk to Bill Neville. And so he ran to a phone and he calls (laughs) Bill, who's sitting in his office in Bozeman, Montana, coaching for Montana state. I don't know how the time zones worked out or what, but somehow (laughs) Bill answers the phone and, and, and Steve says something like, Hey, I'm about ready to go out there. Give me that. Give me your pep talk. Let, you know, psych me up here. You know, I want to get stoked to go out there and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, so Bill, Bill does his best to kind of get him going. He says, but anyway," he goes, Steve, you know, you know how to do this yourself. Now you're, I'm letting, you, you, he's like the karate kid. You know, he's like, you, you're, I'm letting you go. You're, you're, you, you, you are Steve Timmons now you can, but Steve still, you know, remembers that fondly that he actually called, called him up and, and, uh,
0: you know, asked, said, give me some of those nevelisms to keep, get me really. Real. <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. And, uh, and there's one more anecdote from the book that I want to talk about before I, I let you go is the, uh, the, the inter-squad scrimmage in Pullman, Washington, where reading about it, this was what, two, three weeks before the Olympics?
1: Yeah, it was actually the two weeks, almost
0: exactly before the Olympics, they were up in Pullman, And so they end up getting this youth night together, having this inter-squad scrimmage, and it gets really feisty. And the intensity ramps up. And when I was reading it, what it reminded me of is the dream team and that inter-squad scrimmage they had that goes down in lore as one of the best basketball games that's ever been played that was an inter-squad scrimmage because no one competes like brothers and teammates. And I'm interested in your take on it. It, You know, if that was important, if that drew sort of the best out of them, because it seemed like... The coaches thought, now we're ready to win an Olympic medal.
1: Yeah, I thought about that dream team scrimmage too, and I have heard that characterized as the best game that's ever been played. I mean, who knows exactly what was happening behind the scenes there. But, you know, this team was really amped up and ready to play in the Olympics. They At that point, they were peaking. They had not lost a game in – 27 matches something like that they had beat the russians on their home soil in the soviet union four straight unheard of just Mm -hmm. we're talking about a dominant volleyball team that had won the world championships in 82 olympic gold medal in 80 the world championships in 78 i think they took the silver in 76 they'd just been at or near and completely unstoppable for years and all of a sudden this wiry agile bunch of beach players (laughs) you know trying a different system go in there and beat them and they were and then they were going into their not just their home country olympics it was really their hometown olympics right because nine of these 12 players were from southern california between San Diego and maybe Santa Barbara, if you want to call that Karch's home. So we're talking about whatever distance that is, which isn't very far. All these players were from that area, and that's where the Olympics were being held. And all of their friends, all of their family, all of their teammates, there was a lot of interest. So you could just feel the energy as I was interviewing the players and learning. It was building, and and that's why the coaches wanted to get them out of L.A., because they were – They were getting hammered for tickets for access. And they said, no, we're going to do some isolation training, which I think just drove them nuts. I mean, they're out in Pullman, Washington. It's this little town in eastern Washington surrounded by wheat fields. There's nothing out there, absolutely nothing, except for a college, which even at that in the summertime was no one there. So it was like they just pulled them out of LA and put them in the middle of nowhere. And they 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 were. Forced to kind of think about volleyball all day long, and and Karch says they just they were at their wits' end, but they were so competitive, they were so competitive with each other, that one of their scrimmages just boiled over and I I mean you know the sport better than I is is trash talking a a part of the sport Travis
0: (laughs) oh (laughs) it is quite a big part of the sport (laughs) yeah
1: so the trash talking started and it kept going and the night you're talking about I think it was the youth night and they brought in all these young kids because they gave away all these tickets so it was youth night and the coaches were it was getting embarrassing because the coaches were listening to these f-bombs and things getting thrown around on the court and and it almost broke the team apart. I mean, I think they were close because, you, you know, things were said that may have crossed lines there, but I think Marlo brought them back together. And I think they realized, you know, uh, we're so competitive. If we can just bottle this comp- competitive nature up and then release it against the teams that are competitors at the Olympics, we're going to be unstoppable. And they were. And so they figured out how to sort of <laughs> – Forget about the intra squad competitiveness and rechannel it at these uh, teams that they met in the Olympics and they and they went on a run.
0: Yeah. And it uh I was I was cracking up reading it because you did such a good job of of really painting the picture. And I was just imagining Marlowe and his kind of snipey little trash talk, and Carchy so intense, veins popping out of his neck. <laughs> yeah. I guess uh if you
1: I guess you didn't want to trash talk with marlo unless you were really unless you really had your a game trash talking uh, ready to go because he was a world-class trash talker as far as and you can only imagine i mean that's what he does for a living he talks <laughs> sports all day long uh not necessarily trash talking but you know he he verbally is a magician you know so he was just that you just didn't want to mess with the guy that way and so, someone poked the bear or the lion or whatever he was and uh yeah, I, I wish I could have been there for that one. That would have that would would have been fun. You know, Doug, it, Bill Neville saw that, and he saw a team ready to go. It's, mm-hmm. it, this is one of those where two two coaches saw something different. Bill said, you know, well, Doug's, Doug looked at it and said, oh, my gosh, we're breaking up. What's going to happen? Things were said that we can't take back, and how am I going to bring this team together? And Bill said, no. What we just saw was a team that is absolutely ready to go kick some butt. And you know, this is the best thing that could have happened because we now know that they are ready. And luckily Bill was right. And Doug, who was the consummate consummate warrior, <laughs> was wrong on that one. And yeah. it ended up working out just fine.
0: Ended up working out uh, historically <laughs> fine. First gold medal in history. Um, and I know that this is for our listeners, this is a beach volleyball podcast and there's a lot of indoor stuff, but like I said so many beach players. I think all beach fans will enjoy it and it's off season anyway. So it's time to chat indoor stuff. And Sean, I thought you did an excellent job painting a really fun history um, uh, of the sport and and of that team in particular. And I think that uh, it's both entertaining for people just looking for an entertaining read during the off season. And um, you'll take a lot away. I mean, I I learned a lot. I'm I'm sure that you did as well. And I'm sure you'll probably be applying a lot of those practices to your own uh, business.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm pulling out lessons and telling stories to business clients around how you build a team just based on some of the interesting steps and decisions that this team made collectively and with the coaches to become better and to to figure out how to become the best team they could be to reach their potential. And I, I think we
0: can all learn from it. Mm-hmm. And so where can our listeners, one, uh, get the book? And where can they find you and follow you and keep up with everything that you're doing?
1: Well, the book is available on Amazon. If it's "If Gold is Our Destiny, How a Team of Mavericks Came Together for Olympic Glory, or just about anywhere you can buy a book online, you can find it there. You can also find me at Sean P. Murray. It's S-E-A-N-P-M-U-R-R-A-Y. That's my website. And you can find out more about the book and some of the things that I'm doing and writing at that web address.
0: Awesome. Well, Sean, uh, it was a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for coming on. I'm glad six months later we could make this happen. Um, and I'm glad, uh, glad the book is doing well. Congrats uh, on the book as well. It's it's a big project. I'm excited to read your next one.
1: Thank you, Travis. It was really wonderful to be on the show. I love the show. I love what
0: you're doing. You're writing too. And, uh, thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thank you very much. We'll have a great Christmas. Happy new year. Same to you. All right. Bye Sean. Bye.